Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, like I said, we're going to be covering all of this in two studies, tonight and next week. So, here Paul is moving on to talk more now about our coming reward in the third part of our salvation. If you remember, I've told you, the Bible shows us that when the Bible talks about salvation, God sees our salvation in three parts. The first part is the moment we are declared righteous by God, justification. There's the process we're in now called sanctification, where he's conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, teaching us how to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And one day, the last part of our salvation, we will see face to face, and that's our glorification. And would we not say amen? Can't wait for that day. That, that is that's going to be an amazing thing when we get to get rid of these bodies and move into the ones that God has for us. The rapture is going to be amazing if we happen to be here at the time that happens. But even if you go to be with the Lord between now and the rapture, you're still going to be a part of the rapture because 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 says God is going to bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Their body's going to come up out of the ground. They'll get their new bodies at that time. And those of us who are alive at that time, if we happen to be, will be caught up and get our new bodies at that time. It's going to be an amazing time. We're going to start looking at glorification tonight. But in order to better unpack these verses, I want us to do something interesting. Let's look at these verses with this context. Let's look at it in the context of Paul saying, I know something you don't know. 
They, creation, know something you don't know. And he, the Holy Spirit, knows something you don't know. That's what we're going to do. And it'll help us really unpack these verses. Paul starts off by saying, I know something you don't know. Then he moves into creation knows something we don't know. And then he says the Holy Spirit knows things that we don't know. All right. So this will be better understood as we break this down. Paul says in verse 18 that the suffering of this present life can't even be compared with the glory that is coming for God's children in the future. You see that in verse 18? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, before we go any further, let's think about this for a second. Do you know of anybody that probably suffered more than Paul besides Jesus himself? Probably not. When you go back and look, Job definitely suffered quite a bit, but Paul suffered a lot as well, correct? Paul says, so it wasn't somebody that's had an easy life saying this. But then he makes this statement. He said, I consider that our present suffering isn't even worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. In other words, what is to come is so amazing, so much more impressive that you won't even think about what's happened in the, this life. Here's my question. How does he know? How does Paul know? Very good. He actually has been there. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verses 1 through 7. By the way, at the end of chapter 11, he has just finished listing a lot of the suffering that he's been through in his life. And he talks about how many times he was imprisoned and stoned and left for dead and adrift in the sea and all this stuff. In chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it, but I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And, I, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Then he goes on and says, Though if I should wish to boast, I wouldn't be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think of me more than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me and to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, we're not going to move into the fact that Paul prayed three times for the thorn to be removed, and God said, my grace is sufficient, and he told him no. But let me just say this to you. Paul clarifies who this person is. He starts off by saying, I know a man. But by the end of this verses, we know who that man is, right? Who is it? It's Paul. He said, though, to keep me. But it's interesting. He said, I was taken into the third heaven. And then he says it again. I was taken into paradise. Third heaven, paradise are the same thing, same place where God dwells. At the same time, he still doesn't fully know whether he was in the body or out of the body, which means he had a body, but it might have been a vision, but he had a body. Whether he's in the body, he goes, I don't know, but it was so real. I got to see the third heaven. I got to see paradise. Oh, but I'm not allowed to talk about it. Which, as a quick aside, has always made me a little bit struggle with these people that have had out-of-body experiences who write books and make movies about all the things they saw when Paul wasn't allowed to talk about it when he was taken there. Again, I'm not going to say they didn't have that happen or any of that kind of stuff. I'm not going there. 
But it makes me, when I look at everything through Scripture, just pause a little bit and check. He got to see. Exactly. He was. That's what I'm saying. It makes me pause a little bit. Isaiah was, he was, he was allowed to talk at least a little bit about what he saw. And Elijah, in the same way, he saw some visions and he was allowed to talk about those. But Paul said he wasn't allowed to talk about what he saw. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Also written by Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 9. He said, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So actually, there's even a sense that as much as Paul saw, he still didn't see it all. Let me just say this to you and just let the scripture speak for itself. Folks, what is to come is going to make you forget about everything that's happened here. You say, well, I don't know, Jim. Let me just say this to you. Read your Bible and go to Isaiah 65 and look at verse 17 where it says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not even be remembered nor come to mind. He wipes away every tear. That's going to happen before we head into the millennial kingdom and all that. But when we're in the new heaven and the new earth after the millennial kingdom, you won't even remember this life because of how amazing the life to come is, the eternal life that we already in, but we will see face to face. Some of us would be glad to let it go now, right? Here, here's the next thing. For years, I've often wondered. Paul said 14 years ago, I was taken into the third heaven, and I've wanted to look at Paul's writings. Did he write a certain way before he was taken into heaven? And then after he had this vision, did his writing change? So I did some research. You know what I found? He was taken into heaven before he wrote any of the books that we have. So all of his writings are since he's had that experience of being taken into heaven. People a lot of times try to figure out when it was. Was it when he was being taught by Jesus face to face? He writes about that in Galatians chapter 1. Or was it one of those times he was stoned and left for dead or whatever? I don't know. Don't try to go beyond what's written. But Paul says, I know something you don't know. What we're going through here isn't worth comparing with what's to be. Now, he wasn't allowed to speak specifically about it except to encourage us to wait for it. Then he moves on in verses 19 through 22, and he says, creation knows something we don't know. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All right, then he moves on to us. So we'll get to that later. Creation, the Bible says, is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed so that it too can be released from the curse of sin. Creation knows that after we're released from our bodies, which we're going to get to tonight, creation says, we're next. So creation, as amazing as it was that Becky and I got to go to Alaska last week and see the beauty of God's creation there, it's actually, 
it's under a curse. You can't even fathom what creation looked like before the curse. You know, when Becky and I, on our 25th anniversary years ago, went to Hawaii, I jokingly said to her, let's go see the mountains in Hawaii before they're gone. You do realize the Bible actually says that during the tribulation period, every mountain's going to be leveled. Every island is going to disappear. There's going to be a reworking of the earth. But when the earth was created, it was created beautifully. It was done well and good. God saw that he made and it was good. But creation was cursed because of man's sin as well. A lot of us lose sight of that and forget. So what we're going to do, we're going to go back and look at what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Go back to Genesis chapter 2 first, and then we'll get to chapter 3. We're going to take a look that in the Garden of Eden, when man sinned, three things happened that apply to us. Not only applied to Adam and Eve at the time, it applies to us. And it's tied to the earth. Can't wait to show this to you, too, because it's going to unlock some things for you in the book of Revelation that are still to come. All right? In Genesis chapter 2, look at verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, in that day you shall surely die. Now go to Genesis chapter 3 and look at verses 1 through 11. Now the serpent was more crafty than any, beast of the, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, the first thing I want you to understand is that when Adam and Eve ate from the tree in which God had told them not to, God told them, in the day that you eat of it, that day, you will die. But did they die physically that day? No, later on, they're making babies and, and all that. They go on for many hundreds of years still. Then what happened? God said they would die that day. They died spiritually. You see what happened? They were able to walk in the presence of the Lord. They were able to see his face. But the moment they, they sinned, something happened to them in their spirits. And they all of a sudden had a broken relationship with God the Father. And when they heard him, they were afraid and they hid. They died spiritually. And as we've already seen, as Paul laid out in the gospel, in the beginnings of the gospel in chapters 1 and following, we're born that way because of Adam. It's been passed on to us. We're born spiritually dead. It's when we're born again through faith in Jesus Christ, that our spirits are made alive, our spirits are made new. But not only did man die spiritually the day in which they ate of it, 
they began now to die physically, when before they weren't going to, now they're starting to die physically. Look at Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19. And God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of it. Eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, and you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So now Adam and Eve began to die physically. Now, if you know and you do a study, you realize that the early humans that God created from Adam and Eve and all that, they all lived a long, long time, didn't they? I mean, Methuselah lived in 900 and something years. And over time, the length, the history and the, the, the length of time of lifespan of people has been less and less and less. Then all of a sudden, because of modern medicine, it picked up a little bit. But y'all do realize this because you look in the mirror most every morning, don't you? Our bodies are starting to just keep dying, aren't we? Inwardly, we're being renewed because of Jesus Christ. And we don't feel as old as our bodies look sometimes. But they died spiritually. And they began to die physically. Now stick with me here because this is going to be important for us a little later on. And the third thing happened. We just read about it. I'm going to read it to you again. Again in chapter 3. Look at verses 17 and 19. The earth also, creation was cursed at that same time. Look at verses 17 to 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and which you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return from the ground to the ground, for out of it you were taken into your dust, for your dust into dust you shall return. The earth was cursed at that moment because of man's sin. So again, three things that are going to apply to us. They died spiritually, they began to die physically, and the earth was cursed. Now in the Old Testament, some of you may know this, some of you may not, God actually set up three laws of redemption, which would point to how Jesus would redeem all these curses in the future. The three things that happened at the moment that Adam and Eve sinned when they ate from the tree, Actually, in the Old Testament, God set up three different laws of redemption that are tied to those three, which will be fulfilled by Jesus. One already has. The other two are still yet to be accomplished. They've already been paid for by the blood of Jesus on his death on the cross and through his resurrection. But it hasn't happened in time yet. First off, there's the law of redeeming the bride. As you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, go to Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. Y'all know the story of Ruth and Boaz, right? How the law said, and I'm about to read it to you, that when a man died having produced no offspring, a near relative was to take the wife and take her as his wife and produce children through her for in the name of the, the one who had died. Look at Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. 
And if the man doesn't wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I don't wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull off his sandal, pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. All right. So the law, interesting little law here. God had set up that if a man died and he had produced no offspring to continue his name, his relative was to come, take that wife, redeem her, and produce offspring, which would actually get the inheritance that would be his brother's. You all know that Hosea was told by God to do the same thing. Remember? He married a wife who was a prostitute. She actually went off and made babies with other people. By the way, that's why the, the children are not my people's. One of them's named, you know. And, and, but he was told to go buy her back. A picture of what Jesus was going to do. When we trust in Christ, we are made spiritually alive again and able to be in God's presence again. And we become the what of Christ? The bride of Christ. This law of redeeming the bride was pointing to something Jesus would do through his death on the cross, his sinless life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. And we've already looked at in our study of Romans that when we were born dead in sin, there becomes a point when we are born again, we are made spiritually alive, and when we're made spiritually alive, we're able to go into the presence of God with our prayers and our access. He comes to live in us and, and us and him. We're swimming in God. And at the same time, we become the bride of Christ. He has redeemed the bride or the spiritually dead. Let me just have you go real quickly to some verses that kind of lay this out. Some of them we've looked at before, but go real quickly to, with me to John chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. John chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Go to John chapter 11, look at verses 25 through 26. Jesus is speaking to Martha when her brother has just died and he's about to raise him from the dead. And Jesus says in verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, hang on for a second. Look at what Jesus said. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die... Yet shall he live. Do you realize he's talking about the two types of death here, right? Remember, we died spiritually at the time. Adam and Eve died spiritually when they ate from the, the tree, and they were going to eventually die physically. They began to die physically. Jesus says, look, whoever believes in me, even though they physically die, they've been made alive. And actually, even though they may physically die, if they believe in me, they're never going to die. 
Our bodies might go down to the dust of the earth. But folks, if you're in Christ, you go right into the presence of the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Paul says, I know that I'm sitting here in prison in Philippians 1, that I'm wrestling with whether I'm going to live or die. Either way, I'm going to be delivered. Either way, it's going to be fine, because if I go on in my body, that's more reward later on. But if I die, I get to go be with Christ, which is better by far. The Bible teaches that for those of us who are in Christ, we never die. Our physical bodies may stop working, which they're doing part at a time right now, aren't they? But the real us has been made alive. You're already entered into eternal life. You've passed from death to life. You don't need to fear that time. And I, one of the things that grieves me is I deal with older, I'm going to say church members, is to watch how when people get older and they get closer to death, they're afraid. And they start saying things like, I hope I've done enough. Oh, folks, please don't go there. Don't start thinking that how good you've been is tied to whether or not you're going to heaven. We're given grace and salvation through faith alone in Jesus Christ. If you think for a second that whether or not when you pass from this life to the next is tied to how good you've been, you've missed it. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to put on that helmet of salvation. Know that you have eternal life. And don't fear that day. Oh, by the way, if you don't fear death, Satan has nothing on you. Well, if you don't fear death, Satan has nothing on you. What can he do to you? Now listen. John 14. Look at verses 15 through 20, and then verse 23. John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him and you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'll come to you and yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you'll see me and because I live, you also will live and in that day you'll know that I'm in my Father and you're in me and I'm in you. Jump down to verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Isn't that awesome? Folks, we were born dead spiritually because of Adam and Eve's sin. It has passed on to us. But at the moment we trusted Jesus, we became the bride of Christ and we were redeemed. The law of redeeming of the bride was pointing to what Jesus was going to do to buy us back. Go to Revelation chapter 21. Look at verses 1 through 4. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4. This is after John's seen the vision of the millennial kingdom. And then he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, by the way, listen. When he sees the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, this amazingly huge city coming down, which is 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles, East, west, north, south. It's a huge city. If you ever do the Revelation study, you get to see how big that actually is. It's going to be an amazing thing. But he sees it as the bride of Christ. Oh, by the way, right now we're the bride of Christ. But when you go back and look and do a study, 
you'll realize that the foundations and the gates are a mixture of not just the church, but also Israel. God divorced Israel because of their sin. But the Bible teaches clearly that he's going to buy them back. He's going to remarry Israel. He called them a harlot, a whore, many times. You remember our Ezekiel study. It got uncomfortable after a while hearing that word a few times, didn't it? But then when, it, when he comes again and Israel turns to him in faith, he describes her as, O virgin, Israel. And Israel's going to be a part of this. Israel's going to be a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb and the feast. Israel's going to be a part because Israel's tied to the bride as well. So, three things happened when Adam and Eve ate from the tree. One, they died how? Spiritually. Secondly, they began to die physically. And thirdly, what was cursed? The earth was cursed. Well, okay, one law of redemption, the redeeming of the bride has already been accomplished and will be accomplished in the life of anyone who trusts Jesus as your Savior. You are alive spiritually. You become the bride of Christ. But there was also another law of redemption in the Old Testament called the law of redeeming the slave. Go to Leviticus chapter 25 and look at verses 47 through 55. Leviticus 25, 47 through 55. Again, God set up another law. Again, all pointing to Jesus and what he will accomplish. Leviticus 25, starting in verse 47. It says, if a stranger or a sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you to or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee. And the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption, some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So God had set up this law that if an individual became poor and needed to survive by becoming a slave to somebody else, there was a law for redeeming the slave. A near relative could come and pay the price to get you redeemed so you wouldn't have to be a slave anymore. And there's this year of Jubilee every 50th year where they could be automatically set free. We have been made alive and we're his bride, but we still live in bodies under the curse we're still dying physically, even though we will never die spiritually. And the Bible says in the book of Romans, which we're going to go look and look at again. We've already looked at it. That our bodies are still what to sin? Slaves. And then what Paul said in chapter 7, the things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. I find this law to be at work. That even though in my inner man, since I've been made alive spiritually, I want to do the will of God. But I got this other problem right there with me. It's this body of flesh, which is still under the curse. But there's going to be a day when which the slave, our body, will be set free. Does anybody know when that's going to happen? At the rapture. We'll get to that in just a second. But go to Romans 8. Look at verses 23 through 25. 
Romans 8, 23 through 25. Paul says, and not only the creation is waiting, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Would you not agree that because of Christ in you, you're homesick and you're ready to go to heaven even though you've never been there? Would you not agree that daily we struggle in this tent that we have until we get to take it off and get our new ones, the eternal ones? In the same way that creation's waiting to get its liberation from its curse, it's waiting until something happens prior to that, which is us getting our new bodies at the rapture. Back in Romans 7, look again at verses 21 through 25. Paul says in verse 21, So I find it to be a law when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, my body, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive, slave to the law of sin that dwells in my body. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And that's why we have to learn to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Our bodies are still slaves to sin. That's why we have to learn by the power of God to walk in the spirit and not in the, the flesh. And we won't gratify the desires of the flesh as we just walk in the spirit. But one day, as we've already talked about, these bodies that are still under the curse will be released from their curse. Just like we've been made alive spiritually through faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches that one day we will get our new bodies. That's why we won't have time to turn there. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, Paul talks about it. We also know in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about it. We're not going to all sleep, but we're all going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of the eye. This mortal flesh is going to be gone and we're going to put on immortality. Those of us who are alive are going to be caught up and get our new bodies. Those who have come already gone to the Lord who don't have their new bodies yet, they're there in a spiritual form of some sort. They don't get their new bodies till that time, but they're going to come with Him. Their bodies are going to come out of the ground. We're going to get our new bodies. But listen, this is very important. Creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. When will the sons of God be revealed? At the redemption of our bodies. At the rapture. By the way, for those of you that are still wrestling with whether or not the rapture is prior to the tribulation period and all that stuff, how about that? The fact that creation is waiting for the rapture because creation knows that after the rapture of the church, creation says, we're next. We're next. We won't be redeemed from our curse until after the church has been taken away and they get their new bodies, their adoption as sons, and we get our new bodies. But then... There was a third law of redeeming. Well, there's a law of redeeming the bride, which was accomplished and is accomplished when anybody was born again. They're made the bride of Christ. They're alive spiritually. There's a law of redeeming the slave, which will happen when we get our new bodies. And there's a law of redeeming the land. Go back to Leviticus 25. Look at verses 23 through 28. This is kind of cool. I can't wait to show it to you. Leviticus 25, 23 through 28. It says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. 
If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and let him pay back the balance and so on. Let me just I'll go to verse 28 because we're going to keep moving here. And let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man who, whom he sold it and let him return his property. If he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he, what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall, re, shall return to his property. So, again, here we see a law of redeeming the land. Again, interestingly enough, God set up three laws of redemption. One of the redeeming of the, uh, of the bride, one of the redeeming of the slave, and another law of redeeming of the land. And they're all tied to those three things that happened in Genesis 3. Go ahead, Rick. That Jubilee, uh, yes, I... Uh, this year is a jubilee year. I don't, I don't want to go there because I don't want to get too many people excited and too many people saying, Jim said, but I'm actually preaching a homecoming message at a church in Virginia on the Sunday before the Feast of Trumpets. And I'm going to be bringing a message at that homecoming about our homecoming. I can't wait to preach it. And it just may be that at the Feast of Trumpets on the year of jubilee, we get, ah, don't say, Jim says, no, don't, no, no, no. But I'm watching for it at all times. The earth is the Lord's and will re ultimately be returned to his control. A near relative could come and buy back the land that was lost if they could meet the terms. A lot of you may not know this, but the terms were written on two scrolls. One was sealed and another one unsealed. The unsealed one was posted where it could be read, like at a community billboard. The sealed one was only to be opened by the relative who could meet the terms. Go to Jeremiah 32. Again, if someone lost their land, only a near relative could come and open the sealed copy if they were able to meet the terms. They would read the unsealed copy in the public place. Go to Jeremiah 32. Look at verses 6 through 15. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anatoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anatoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anatoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed and sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions, and the open copy, remember there are two copies, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Mahasiah, uh, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard, I charged Baruch in the, their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and the open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, for that they may, may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. One of the ways that God has Jeremiah show that even though he's taking them out of the land because of their sin and their, their judgment because of that, one day he's going to bring them back to that land. And in order to do so, 
he has Jeremiah buy a piece of property for, from a relative because he was the near relative who could redeem the terms. And he has him put those copies, the sealed one and the unsealed one, in an earthen vessel, kind of like we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because he says one day there will be buying and selling of the land again. But there were two copies. One was open for the public to see, and there was a sealed one. And who was the only one allowed to open the sealed one? The near relative who was able to meet the terms. Go to Jeremiah chapter, uh, sorry, Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. At the beginning of the tribulation period, Jesus is the one who is going to come and he's going to take the scroll, which is the, it's the deed to the earth, and he's going to buy it back. By the way, he's already met the terms. Remember how Jeremiah paid for it before they opened the sealed one? Jesus has already paid, made, paid the, made the payment. He's already made the payment. Now listen. The earth is the Lord's and everything is. Isn't that what Psalm tells us in Psalm 24, verse 1? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But the Bible also tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that he created man and woman and, and, and he gave them dominion over the earth. But what did we do? We subleased it. We lost it. We lost our dominion. And Satan was given it. And he's the ruler of this world right now, is he not? Even though Jesus defeated him, he's waiting until the time when the third law of redemption will be met. The first law of redemption has happened to us who are in Jesus Christ and the bride of Christ and happening every day between now and the rapture. The second law, the redeeming of the slave, is going to happen at the rapture when we get our new bodies. And creation is waiting with expectation for that day, which is the rapture prior to the tribulation period because creation knows that after the rapture of the church, creation says we're next. And if you've ever read the book of Revelation and studied it, you'll know that when Jesus begins to open the seals, remember there's seven seals? Things start to happen on the earth, don't they, every time? People say, well, I think the first part of the tribulation period is the wrath of, God, uh, wrath of man and the wrath of Satan, and I think the second period is happening. Who's opening the first seal? Jesus. And he's getting the land back. And they're starting to things happen. Oh, by the way, you parallel Revelation chapter 5 and 6 and so on with Matthew 24, where Jesus is asked, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And he says, oh, let me just tell you, there's going to be Antichrist, first seal. The white horse, the man on the white horse, the Antichrist comes out. Then he says to him in Matthew 24, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, second seal, the red horse. And you can just see the parallel between Jesus opening the seals and what Jesus describes in the tribulation period. And you'll see as he opens the seals, the Antichrist steps into the wing of the temple like Jesus said he would in Matthew 24 and all that. Folks, let me just say this to you. The Bible also tells us, and I can't take the time to take you there tonight, but if you ever read my book on what will happen next, get it. Because we lay this out. 
Who comes up to John when he's weeping because there was no one to open the scroll? An elder. In my book, I lay it all out for you and show you how the 24 elders are the church. And just like the priests, there were many priests in the time of the nation of Israel, but there were so many, they all couldn't serve around the altar of God in the temple at the same time. They had 24 divisions, and they each took their turns during their divisions. They even broke up all the worshipers into 24 divisions. I actually believe without question that we'll take turns sitting on those thrones around the throne of Jesus. You ready for something that might blow your mind? You or I may be the elder that says, who's worthy? You ever think about that? John saw what is to come. It hasn't happened yet. You ever thought about the fact that you and I may be that person who says he's worthy to open the scroll? That's pretty cool. Don't try to get in line. I'm already in line. You might be in front of me. <laughs> Notice the order in Romans 8. We've been made alive spiritually and sealed with God's spirit. We're co-heirs with Christ. We've grown inwardly, waiting for our new bodies. Creation is waiting for us to get our new bodies because they know they're next. Go to Revelation 4. I just touched on this, but I want you to see it. Look at verses 1 through 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. This is after his messages to the churches in the church age. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. By the way, you go back and read in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, Jesus makes this promise to the churches. I'm going to dress you in white robes. I'm going to give you golden crowns. You're going to rule with me and reign with me. Folks, the church is already in heaven before the, seal, the seals are open. Is the tribulation coming? Yes. Are we close? Without question. But what has to happen prior to it for the scripture to be true? The church has to be raptured. As I travel around the country and teach on the book of Revelation, and by the way, if you're listening right now and you don't know about what I'm talking about, I've written a book just recently within the last year with the help of my daughter, Elise, and it's called What Will Happen Next? And we've taken the book of Revelation and put it in the chronological order. We've taken the whole what will happen next and we've show, we lay it all out. We deal with chapters 4 through 22 and we put them in order because prophecy jumps around and we put it chronologically in order and show you why. And we show you that over three quarters of the book of Revelation was already written in the Old Testament. All Revelation does is compile the prophecies and explain. We, we knew that there was a millennial coming kingdom on the earth where Jesus was going to rule and reign. It's the book of Revelation, chapter 20, that shows us that it's going to last a thousand years, but then it's going to come to an end, and the new heaven and the new earth, and all these things. If you're interested in getting this book, just please contact our ministry. Send us your address and how many you want. We send them out free of charge to everyone. There, there's no charge. They're free of charge. Please, 
let us know because we want you to read this book and get it out. Praise the Lord, we're on our fourth printing already and people around the country and parts of the world are saying, the book of Revelation makes sense. And I'm like, good, get the word out. We, we don't charge them. I saw your hand, go ahead. I read an article years ago from a group of scientists who studied the universe to try to determine the color. This verse made me think of it. They all agreed that there was a greenish hue to the universe. Yeah, well, if you look at this rainbow, and the emerald and all that stuff. If you take a look at, at, at the rainbow around his throne, you'll see that Ezekiel saw the same thing. Ezekiel saw the same thing. Folks, let me just say this to you. As I, like I say, travel around, people ask me, Jim, uh, well, there are people who think that the rapture is going to happen in the midpoint of the tribulation or the, the post of the uh, end of the tribulation and all these different views. And when I used to start teaching on Revelation as a young preacher many, many years ago, I used to teach, well, here's what the pre-tribulation of the pre-tribulationist view is, and here's what the mid-tribulationist view is, and here's what the post-tribulationist view is, and I've stopped doing that for a lot of reasons. One of them was, everybody walked out of there going, I'm totally confused. And the second reason is this, I would never teach what the Jehovah's Witness believe, because I don't believe it's biblical doctrine. Why would I teach what I don't believe is biblical doctrine? Now let me say something to you that may surprise you. I could take 15 minutes tonight and I could convince you from Scripture of the amillennial view that there is no millennial kingdom on the earth, that it's an amillennial view, which is a strong view in the church right now. I could convince you of it using just Scripture. The problem would be that I would be leaving off a lot of the other verses. And the way that God has blessed my mind to be when it comes to His Word, the only view that matches with all of the scripture and works is the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And then there's a literal millennial kingdom on the earth and then a new heaven and a new earth for eternity. Folks, let me encourage you with these words. As crazy as things are, as bad as they're going to get, and they're going to get worse. I mean, you think that famines aren't about to happen? Well, don't worry. Jesus said it's going to happen. Remember in the book of Revelation, he says during the tribulation period, it's going to be so bad on the earth that it's going to take a day's wage just to get a loaf of bread. We're grumbling about gas prices going up. At the same time, we're not to know the times or the dates that the Father set by his own authority. It's tempting, isn't it? But at the same time, we're to be watching and we're to be ready and if we believe that he's coming and that all this is going to be destroyed, how ought to we live our lives? We ought to be, well, let me take you to 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to give you a little New Orleans lanyap. It's not in my notes. Lanyap is extra. You go to New Orleans and they serve you some food and you say, could I have a little lanyap? They'll give you another bowl for it. 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. What is our responsibility between now and when he comes and takes us as his bride? We're to be making ourselves wet, ready. Uh, ladies, you know what I'm talking about. You remember when the wedding date was set? See, 
in the Jewish wedding, the date was never set. The, 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 the groom would come and he would agree with the purchase price with the dad and he would purchase her and she would be his. That's why the betrothal was legally binding, like, like, like we have Joseph and Mary. But he, the groom would say, I've just purchased my bride. And he'd go and make his preparation, go back to his father's house and get everything ready. And whenever the father said, okay, you're ready, he would come and get her. And they had, the bride's job was to be ready. She didn't know when he was coming, but she was to be ready. And you ladies, you know full well what you did between the time when you were engaged and that day that the wedding, which you knew the date was coming. You ate a lot of celery. You made yourself ready. You were looking in the mirror over and over and over. Were you not? Because you wanted to be ready for that day when you were to become the bride. Here's our mirrors. We don't know what kind of bodies we're going to have. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, look, the kind of seed you throw into the ground when you plant something isn't what comes out. In the same way, these bodies that we have, they're not what's going to be. It's going to be different. I think there's some hints in the scripture that we might be able to fly. I'll get right to you in a second, Lee. I think there are some hints in scripture that we're going to have a Shekinah glory like Adam and Eve had. They had the glory of God, just like the glory of God. They were made in his image. They didn't even realize they were naked. The glory they had was so amazing. I think we're going to have that in different levels. Go ahead, Lee. I think without question we'll know one another. I think we'll know them. How it will, will we remember them as parents? Will we remember? I think we'll know each other because when Moses and Elijah appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, they weren't wearing name tags and there were no Polaroids back then. But they knew that's Moses and that's Elijah. I think we'll know each other. Exactly. Yep. We'll know him as we are known. But I believe we'll know each other. Go ahead. All right. Now, I'm going to answer the animal question in a way that is biblical, but will make me unpopular. I don't believe that our animals that we had on the earth will be with us in the new. Again, there are people that have different views. I'm actually going to be flying to Massachusetts uh, in a little over a week, and I'll be preaching for off and on during 10 days over there, doing a whole series on heaven, because they've actually requested it. They've had a lot of deaths, and a lot of people are just ready for heaven like we are, and they said, we want you to come, and there's going to be a question and answer night, and there's going to be a night that I know that this question is going to come up. But the Bible says that plants have just a body, but no soul and no spirit. Animals have a body and a soul. They have personality and will, but they don't have a spirit. We're the only part of creation that doesn't have, that has all three, I mean. We're the only part that has all three, body, soul, and spirit. That's why the Bible says, when David says, when I was in sin, I was like a brute beast before you. I was like an animal that had no connection with you. A lot of people want to believe that Frou-Frou or Fluffy is going to be in heaven. I don't believe the Bible teaches Jesus died for our animals. Now, I could be wrong. And I know all you animal lovers hate me right now. What's that? But I believe there'll be animals. Oh, I believe without question there's going to be animals. And if you want to, what's that? Well, <laughs> now we're starting to digress. People are sitting on their couches at home are going, we lost it. We, we, there's no oceans anymore. We do know that. So, but God can make a wave on a sea, on, on, on a lake, you know, kind of a deal, or in a river. I don't, you, I've seen people surf on rivers. So, again, I'm not going to say they're in. Here's the deal. What, what will be has not yet been revealed. 
But this much we know, it's going to blow our mind. Like I said, Becky and I came back from Alaska, and I, I got to be honest with you, it was amazing. To look at a glacier and to realize what we were looking at was actually just the one face of one glacier. The guy on the speaker said, um, what you're looking at is over a mile wide. And what you're looking at is actually, if you were to go stand next to it, 200 feet tall, which made a whole lot of sense when a section of it would break away and fall. If you imagine a whole mile of a city in New York, 20-story buildings, and a chunk of that city falling, it makes some noise. It was amazing how loud the, the calving was. The, the, ice, the ice could be as old as Christ. Yeah, it's, it's crazy to think about some of that stuff. Let me say this to you, folks. Hang on. It'll all be revealed. Jim Johnson could be wrong about the animal thing. And you get eternity to say nanny, nanny, boo-boo. But if you're asking me, I'm going to stick with what the scripture teaches. And we've got to stay there. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.